Welcome to the Parenting with Impact podcast with your hosts, Elaine Taylor-Klaus and Diane Dempster, co-creators of ImpactParents.com, an online community, award-winning blog, and service organization, helping parents all over the world to raise complex kids become capable, independent adults. Elaine and Diane are certified coaches with personal experience raising children with challenges such as ADHD, anxiety, and more, and extensive experience in guiding parents to raise their complex kids with confidence and calm. On the podcast, Elaine and Diane interview experts, bringing you cutting-edge information about your child's challenges, teach you real-life strategies to create lasting change, and demonstrate how coaching can guide you to parent your complex kids one conversation at a time. For the essentials of Elaine and Diane's coach approach to parenting, download a free tip sheet at impactparents.com slash podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to another conversation in the Parenting with Impact podcast. I am so excited to have this conversation. We had a little pre-conference, I got to say, Diane and Holly and I were welcoming Holly. How do you pronounce your, is it Holly Blanc Moses? Yes, very good. Perfect. Awesome. Yeah. A fellow Southerner from North Carolina and has a great deal of expertise that she's bringing today, particularly in the arena of behavior management and, and autism treatment. And so today we're going to talk about autism and girls and coexisting conditions. And so, as I said, we had a little pre-conversation and we're so excited to like jump into this conversation because there's so, such a huge need in our community. Yeah. So Holly, start by just talking a little bit about how you got to where you are, what, what you do, just a little bit of the backstory. Sure. Absolutely. So I've been supporting children on the spectrum, children with ADHD and anxiety for about 23 years now. So it's been a bit and (laughs) I've been, yeah, a little bit. And I've been interested in this population since I was in middle school, actually, I noticed, and I'm 47 now, so I'm showing my age a little bit, but before there was this big divide, the separation between uh, neurotypical kids and kids that were wired differently. And I couldn't understand why we were separated at lunch. We were separated in classes and it just didn't make sense to me. And I just became really intrigued by this. Like, why can't we all be together? What is happening here? And nobody really talked about it back then. Mm-hmm. And that's when I started learning again, more and more about these populations. And I knew what I wanted to do even before I started college. So I just hit the ground. That's really amazing that you knew that. I'm so envious of that. (laughs) (laughs) No jumping around. Just like, this is what I want to do. (laughs) I spent decades trying to figure out what I wanted to do. That's awesome. Okay. And so what is it that you do with families of complex kids? Yes. So I'm a psychologist in private practice and I work with complex kids, kids that often present with both autism, ADHD, and anxiety. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what are the, some of the things from that audience, autism, anxiety, and we were talking earlier, particularly about girls, right? There's this whole new realm of recognizing that actually girls have autism too. That's a real thing. Um, it's true. <laughs> right. <laughs> so before we go into like, what do you want parents to know? Can you just talk a little bit about how does it look different in girls? Why is it that we missed it for so long in girls? Cause it must look differently. Definitely. So one of the things that I do, one of the services that I provide in my practice is testing for autism. 
So I've been doing this again for a very long time. And what I found was this movement where girls were identified if there was a very big speech delay or there were a lot of kind of self-stimulatory behaviors such as rocking or flapping. Those were the girls that were getting diagnosed earlier. Mm-hmm. But what happened was we missed all these other girls. They were often diagnosed first with anxiety, depression. These are what we typically see. Even now we see this. And what happened in this process is we've been understanding more and more about the girls who maybe didn't have a big speech delay, but they showed anxiety very early on. They showed maybe some social differences early on. We are missing them for lots of reasons, including that their restricted interest may look more neurotypical. For instance, if they're very interested in horses or unicorns, that's not your idea of what people think of maybe when they think of autism is trains and these other kind of stereotypical ideas that that people may have. So we're missing girls all of the time. Well, so the other thing that comes up as you're saying that is that, you know, 10 years ago, you couldn't diagnose a child with both ADHD and autism. That's true. That's true. There was an update in the diagnostic manual, and that was really difficult for a lot of providers. I know I personally was very frustrated when I knew a child coming in for an assessment met criteria for both, but we weren't able to diagnose them then, but now we are. And there's lots of research going on right now, specifically at Duke, that we are looking at both populations and there's a whole lot of overlap. And that's something to consider too, when a girl might be diagnosed with maybe inattentive ADHD early on. And they also would meet criteria for autism, but nobody really understood those types of girls before. So the question that's popping in right away is the, the, so what for a parent, right? It's just sort of, so what if it's autism? So what if it's ADHD? What's the important distinction underneath the differences? Right. So why does it matter? I think that's an excellent conversation to have when we get a diagnosis as a parent, and we adopted both of our boys from foster care. Our oldest son is autistic and has severe ADHD, and our youngest son has severe ADHD and um, learning differences as well. So even though I already did this for a living before we adopted them, there's still something about that diagnosis that can be pretty hard. Um, I did a research study. Sock in the gut is the way I might describe it. I I agree. (laughs) So I did a research study for an autism society about 15 years ago, and it was parents of newly diagnosed children Mm -hmm. of ASD. And it was interesting to see some of the parents who had received this diagnosis. It was like a punch. It was all of these ideas that I had that would happen for my child may not happen now. This idea of this future that we envisioned. And there were other parents who were relieved. They were thinking, thank goodness, somebody is listening to me now. I knew that they had autism, but nobody believed me, or now we can finally get services. So the diagnosis doesn't define any child. It doesn't. I think of it as a checklist. 
We do assessments. And of course, they need to be thorough. They need to be excellent. We don't ever want to put a diagnosis on someone unless we are very sure that they meet that criteria. But it also can be helpful because of support services, because of communication. I would imagine a girl going into middle school or high school, if a teacher knows that that girl is autistic, they are going to probably look at their behavior in a different way, in a more supported way. Mm-hmm. Well, well, and it's and interesting. I don't know, Elaine, if you're going in the same direction I am. One of the things that's kind of been a, a most a thorn in my side is the fact that a lot of times an ADHD diagnosis and an autism diagnosis, even though some of the behaviors are similar and the supports can be similar, the world looks at it differently, right? It's this sort of autism is viewed differently than ADHD is, even though some of the accommodations and the supports are similar. It's true. They're both neurodevelopmental differences, right? There are real differences in their development. And there are very big differences in how the world perceives them. Exactly. So, you know, 10, 20 years ago, an autism diagnosis would have people hiding in a corner. Now people are very forthright about autism diagnosis. They're much more eligible for services. And there is a support that comes for parents that I think that doesn't necessarily come to parents when their kids have an ADHD diagnosis. I I often say one of them is almost like a pity response and one of them is a judgment response. I do agree. And I think it comes with the idea of just knowledge in the community. Mm -hmm. And what a beautiful thing that we're having this discussion. So people who listen to this episode can share the information that ADHD greatly can impact a child's life, greatly impact a parent's life. So ADHD is not a light version of a child's experience. ADHD, as you know, has a massive impact on a child's life, on the parent's life, on the child's learning. And I think when now that we have more information out there about autism, we see a big push in the direction of support and funding and all of those things, which should happen. But one diagnosis and one challenge is not any more significant than the other. But I definitely understand what you're saying. I see that as well. I also feel like people often misunderstand children with ADHD because all they see is this behavior. They're choosing to behave in a way that is causing disruption. They're choosing to not listen. And that's where I think the big gap is. So let's try to make it real. What do you want parents to be thinking about? when they've got kids with ADHD or autism or girls with autism or anxiety or any of this stuff, what we want them to be thinking about in terms of how they can best support their kids, whatever the issues are. Sure. And I think that's an excellent question to speak specifically to girls for a moment. Great. We miss it a lot. There are young women. There are women my age that will come to me and say, I've always felt different. I've been looking things up. I really feel like I'm autistic, but I don't know. I brought it up to my friends. I brought it up to my family and they say, no, you're not. But I, people know themselves, right? But yeah. as a parent, I think it's important to be looking at what are their interests? 
are they really tight and nailed in to certain interests? Do they spend most of their time either talking about or engaging in particular activities? Do they have one or two really close friends versus maybe many friends? Do they struggle sometimes communicating their thoughts and their feelings? Do you find that they are exhausted from, and they could possibly be masking, pretending to be neurotypical when they're not? So let's first talk about girls. I know right. a lot of parents are, they're doing the best they can. They want to do everything to support their child. And it's not easy, especially when different professionals are telling you different things. I used but, to call it pinball. It was parenting yes. pinball. Is, is, you know, so we're over here and then we're over here. And this person yeah. said this and this person said that. And what's important, I guess, Holly, is the, the big the, thing. What are some of the signals? So let's talk about girls. Exactly. And I know that can be overwhelming and not only as a professional, but a parent, again, of two differently wired kids. It it is really tough. Often when I see girls, and again, I have younger girls coming to me for ASD evaluations, middle school girls, high school girls, college girls, adult women, knowing that something is different for them but they can't quite figure it out. And again, they're often diagnosed with anxiety, depression, possibly ADHD as well. Often I think that's misdiagnosed in girls. I'm sure you can agree. Yeah. Yeah. But something to consider is if you are a parent of a girl and you're thinking, wow, they, they have interest. Every kid has interest. Every adult has interest. These are intense interest. These are interests that they kind of only talk about these things, or they might steer conversation back to their interests. They may feel much more comfortable talking about the interests, and it could be because they know a lot about it. They can feel confident doing that, right? They probably been told by other people that, whoa, you know a lot about that. You're like an expert. So that's other, other things to think about too. We might see more, again, typical looking interests such as horses or Pokemon or these other like unicorns, drawing unicorns, if they are really intense in their interests, that's something to consider. Another thing is anxiety. Do they struggle with meeting new people? Do they struggle with initiating conversation? And if they do initiate conversation, is it a little bit different? Do they stand around a group? Do they kind of follow the group? There are a lot of things that we can look at as far as social differences. Some differences we see are friendships. You know, parents may come in and say, but she has a friend. So school said that she's not autistic. You can be autistic and have have friends, friends, right? It's possible. (laughs) You know, most kids that I see in my practice, they've got a buddy that they hang out with. That is not defining autism. So you have to look at that friendship, look at the nature of it. So there may be people in the classroom that are rejecting them or bullying them. A lot of girls that come to see me for autism testing, I see that. And it's hard. They feel lonely and it's confusing. All the social things are confusing. And again, they may have trouble communicating what their thoughts and feelings are. 
So I was just thinking about one a kid that I'm thinking about who in the early years thought everyone was their friend and didn't understand whether anyone was a friend. And then later years got bullying. The bullying came up. But in the preschool years, you would have thought the kid had friends, but that's because the kid didn't know any strangers. So that's a really good point, Elaine. And when we do an ASD evaluation, those are some of the questions that we ask. Do you, how many friends do you have? I have 23. Well, how many kids are in the class? 23. 23. Exactly. Right. So we have to think about that for sure. And that's why it's important to dig in and we have to do really thorough evaluation for that reason. And some kids might say, I don't have any friends when a teacher might say, actually, you typically hang out with this child. So we want to take in a lot of information, but what we do know is again, a lot of girls mask, they feel like they can't be themselves. They don't want to be rejected socially. And they're exhausted trying to pretend to be somebody they're not because they want so badly to be accepted. Right. And that's, that's a common misconception. They actually do want to be socially engaged in part of the world. It's not that they don't want to have friends. It's that they may not know how. And sometimes, you know, extroverts and introverts can both have autism is the other piece here. Absolutely. And I know lots of, obviously I've been doing this for a long time and there are children and adults that I work with that are extroverted, Mm -hmm. but they still unfortunately have to deal with social rejection and, you know, you're weird or you're different or you're this. It's a hard situation to be in school and be feeling that way. Well, and imagine if you get your energy from other people, but you don't know how to socially interact with other people, how difficult that would be. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So So what are you going to say, Di? You were going to, we were talking about struggling communicating. We talked about engaging in just one activity. We talked about kind of exhaustion from masking. We talked about social engagement. Is there anything else? And what's the, so what do we do as parents, right? Because this is about helping our kids to engage differently helping our kids to feel more comfortable and successful. I mean, what's again, let's go back to the, so what? Right, right. So it's important as a parent, and again, specifically talking about parents of girls, if you suspect that your daughter, that your child may be on the spectrum, try to get an evaluation as soon as you can. Knowledge is power and make sure to you know, decide who you're going to go with. You don't want to go with just anybody. You want to go with a provider who has experience diagnosing girls on the spectrum. Many times what will happen is I end up being the second opinion. And again, it's easy to miss. It really is. And I can understand why it would be. Well, and I think that I, just to normalize it for people, I think up until the last few years, it was more often missed than not. Exactly. And so we really need to understand that if you've got a kid over 10 years old and you're suspecting, there's a very good likelihood that the provider that was doing the evaluation didn't know to consider ASD as a potential diagnosis, didn't have enough information to know how to do that. Like the world has changed on its, has shifted on its axis in the last like five years or so. It's huge. So just because a kid was not diagnosed younger doesn't mean it's not still there. It means that we now have more information to to look at it from a different lens. And I think that's an important point because we know 
social interactions become more and more complicated. Sometimes when I'll see girls, I see the shift where you hit second or third grade and then the social differences seem to reveal themselves even more because it does get more complicated. There's more speaking instead of just running around and playing people, you know, start to kind of group together and little clicks and it gets, it definitely gets more socially complicated. So I want to go to one thing, because I've got so many kids in my mind as we're talking about this. I hear, Diane, your question about so what from parents' perspective. So one question I have is, how is treatment different? Yeah. Because from a behavioral perspective, a lot of we work with parents of kids with ADHD, autism, depression, anxiety, and the behavioral approach is, is very similar. I know that the medication treatment might be different. So what's different if the kid has one diagnosis versus the other? in terms of treatment? Let's start with that. You're right. That's an excellent question. To me, it comes down always to that individual child and their personal experience. So today I may see four children who meet criteria for both ADHD and autism and anxiety. I might also see two people who only meet criteria for ADHD, right? So looking at what that child needs, what their individual experience is. My approach, if I was to put put a title on it, as far as my approach, it would be a mixture of acceptance and commitment therapy and cognitive behavior therapy. Those are beautiful models that really serve both of those populations. But again, it has to be what works for them. For example, if there's a child who maybe is verbal and they're speaking and that's how they typically communicate, that doesn't mean how that they're going to communicate about their emotions. So it may be that I have to start a sentence visually. I was mad because with a blank on my whiteboard. So again, it's all about meeting them where they are, being a detective and seeing what works specifically for them. Great. So the other question that I wanted to ask in that realm is from the kid's perspective. So is autism and and ADHD socially, if you're just looking at the social implications, it's kind of hard to tell the difference. Do you have any, any clues? I'm thinking we do a lot of work with parents of young adults in these years, recent years, Uh, teenagers and young adults, is there anything that you can identify that kind of differentiates when the social issue is ADHD versus when it might be autism? And we're talking, I want to be clear, we're talking about bright kids with autism who are fairly typically functioning in the world. We're not talking about a profound low functioning, if that's fair. So the way I think of it, and there are definitely overlapping for sure. And especially because I typically see children diagnosed with both. Both, right. If you were to be on a playground, and again, this is all individualized considering you might find a child on the spectrum might be following a group or sort of playing in the, you know, around walking around the perimeter, excited to be what doing what they're doing right? A lot of times the other kids aren't wanting to play what they want to play. So they're having a hard time shifting what they want to do because it's not worth playing what the other kids want to play if you don't want to yourself. Right. So they'd rather kind of do their thing. 
If you're looking at a child with ADHD that typically does not meet criteria for ASD, you may see that child kind of like running up there. There's not a lot of personal space. There's a lot of interrupting and they seem to not know when to stop. Um, And what if anxiety is in the mix? If the anxiety is in the mix, that gets a little bit different, right? So if you're talking about a child with ADHD that also has anxiety, they might still act in all those ways, but they're also telling themselves that nobody likes me. Nobody wants to hang out with me. I'm really bad at this. You must also hear that um, if a child's diagnosed with ASD as well. So again, if you were to sit back and look, very generally speaking, A lot of children with ADHD know what they're supposed to do. Now, that doesn't mean that's what happens in the moment because of impulsivity and executive functioning differences. But a child with ASD often will say, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I'm confused. Why did that person do this? And why do they want me to do this? So, and again, a very general way, that is one way to think about the difference. Yeah, it's great. And and Elaine, you were talking about older kids. Is that the playground example is such a powerful one? Is there a way to kind of translate that to, you know, a junior in college? I'm thinking about, you know, distracted kids who might be more, you know, reserved and back away from the crowd because they're distracted by what else is going on rather than in that more impulsive. And, And as they get older, what does it look like in a college student? Right. So for example, If I'm thinking of a high school or college student who has maybe ASD anxiety, they may be very because of all the learning history they've had with being rejected. So even though that person may not be trying to start conversations and, you know, wanting to get into the crowd, that's not, they don't want to. And we talked about that earlier. It's why would I do that? First of all, I don't know what to do and I'm going to get rejected anyway. Plus, they are very invested in their interest, and some of these interests aren't common. For example, if you're really into Godzilla in college, that may not be something that is a common interest for the rest of your class. Mm -hmm. So that might be another reason why somebody may be more reserved. Now, do their interests change over the years as they grow up? Is it could they be interested in, you know, minions as a kid and Harry Potter as a teen and something else as an adult? I'm kind of making it up, but no, um, that's an excellent question. I think of it as a wave. So one wave comes up to the tip, right? And then comes back down and is not necessarily replaced. Because typically autistic people, they like what they like. They're not going to all of a sudden stop liking something. It just doesn't go up to the tip of the wave. It may come back down and then come back up later. So depending on the person and that timeline of the wave, it may be quick. For instance, my husband is autistic and he is very, very much into fly fishing right now. It's very much his restricted interest. Now, that doesn't mean that he doesn't like the last one, which was camping gear, even though it was related. It just means that the other one has come up and is taken over and it will come down and be the other one might pop up again, an old interest or a new one that might be related. 
Interesting. Interesting. Well, so I'm watching our time and, and Holly, we need to start wrapping up our conversation. How do people, if they wanted to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to connect with you? And I know that one of the things I just want to say is that you are a contributor to autism magazine. And so that might be a good resource for folks as well who are listening to the podcast, but how do they find out more about you? Sure. So I do have a private practice in Raleigh, North Carolina. So if anyone is in the area, I would be happy to speak with you. But also I do have a education site. So it's hollyblancmoses.com. And you you can go on there and find free behavior guides, free social skills guides. It's a great place to land for a lot of good information. I also have online courses that help with challenging behavior and an online course for social skills, which is fantastic. Um, Part of it addresses home and community and also the other part addresses social skills at school. So it's a great place to get a lot of good information. I have a podcast, the Autism ADHD Podcast, which we cover all kinds of great topics, lots of fantastic speakers. So I'm hoping the both of you will come on and talk with me on my podcast. And so I also have a very big group for parents. It's called Parenting you know, Autism and ADHD with Holly Blanc Moses. And there's about 6,500 people in that Facebook group. And it is a beautiful group, lots of fantastic information on there. So I'll have to make sure I give you the links for that for the show notes. And also I have a group for professionals as well. Great. Awesome. Awesome. So is there anything that we've like, if we, as we start to wrap up, is there anything we haven't covered that we want to make sure we don't lose in this conversation about autism, ADHD, anxiety, and girls particularly? Definitely. I think being curious, being Mm. curious and (laughs) co-regulating with your child. And I know keeping calm as parents is not easy because I have two differently wired kids and I have been doing this for a long time and I'm still mess up sometimes, right? We're just human, but figuring out how to regulate yourself so you can best support your child. I think that's a big one. And again, being curious about the reasons behind their behavior, they are not trying to kill you or make you miserable, right? Like sometimes we all have the moments where that pops up in our heads, but they are really just doing the best they can in that moment. And so are we. And so how do we work together to move forward in the most successful way? Love that. We often say, don't get furious, get curious. I love it. Right there with you. It's great. So as we wrap up today's conversation, first, I want to thank you for being here and for the wisdom that you bring and the work that you do in the world, because it's, it's really nice to know there are people out there like you diagnosing these kids with so much thoughtfulness and attention and consciousness and awareness to the nuances of these different conditions. It really, there are a lot of people out there who don't, who are not as well-informed who are diagnosing. So it's always really great to be with someone who really knows her stuff. <laughs> so well, thank, thank you. you so much. I appreciate that compliment. So as we end, we often end with a fun wrap. So do you have a favorite quote or motto that you'd like to share with our listeners? Ellie, my new one is the one you just gave me. It's <laughs> yours. What is it? Don't be furious, be curious. Get, get curious, right? not furious. Or don't or get, be furious. Curious, don't not get furious, furious, get curious. Yes. Okay. That is my new favorite quote. 
right now. It's perfect. (laughs) What I love about that is that can really help with regulating parents as well, right? What a beautiful way to pop up in a statement before you say anything. Yeah. I love it. Indeed. Yeah. And a lot of parents have said that that's that they'll write it down someplace. Exactly. You know, as a way to just remind you. And that's what we all need, y'all, is we just need to remind ourselves that this is hard, that we're struggling because they're struggling and their struggling is not on purpose to us. And to just all give ourselves some grace. It's not easy. Well, and to remember that as parents, we're really trying to help our kids to change their behaviors and solve the problems at hand. And we can do that in such a more powerful way if we're calm and we're in our, in our best mind. Yeah. And what's lovely is when we are calm in our best mind, we can help them self-advocate and communicate their needs because we always do have to remember this isn't about our children changing their behavior all the time. A lot of it is we need to change ours and the environment around them and educating other people. And of course, before we go, very important part I want to mention is learn from the autistic community. That is very important. I actually have an autistic mentor for my child because I'm not autistic. I am trying to learn as much as I can, but I'm not. I'm neurotypical. And so I often ask questions to the community because they are going to know so much about how it feels to be them. Yeah, indeed. I love that notion on so many levels. So again, thank you, Holly, for being with us. Thank you all for listening, for tuning in, for being conscious parents, for doing what you do for yourself and for your kids. You make the difference. Take care, everyone. You've been listening to the Parenting with Impact podcast with Elaine and Diane. For more information on the Impact Parents community or to join Sanity School for Parents, please visit impactparents.com. If you like what you've heard, please share this podcast with friends who need similar guidance and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.